0: All Bones Considered, podcast number 12 for April 2020. A Night at the Opera, Giuseppe Del Puente, Eleanor Mayo, Camille Del Mar, David Bispam, and Robert Carson. Cemetery is a national historic landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala kinwood was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 45 minutes or so to learn about three famed opera singers interred at the Laurel Hills. Giuseppe Del Puente, considered the premier baritone of the late 19th century. Eleanor Mayo, whose budding career was derailed by a bad review and a marriage. Camille Del Mar, never a star, but someone who made a living from opera. And David Bispam, the Quaker singer who was a favorite of Teddy Roosevelt. Plus, Robert Carson, whose night at the opera turned out to be lethal. Giuseppe del Puente was an Italian opera baritone who eventually settled in Philadelphia. Despite his renown, he lay on an unmarked grave for more than 60 years. Eleanor Mayo was a flash-in-the-pan soprano who was on her way to stardom until she wasn't. Camille Del Mar was about to open at the Grand Opera House on Broad Street when a tragedy cut short her life. And David Bispam was a tenor whose ancient shellac recordings can still stir the blood. We will hear about all four in this April 2020 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. When opera singer Giuseppe del Puente died in Philadelphia in May of 1900, he was feted in the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and many other newspapers as being, quote, the leading baritone of his time, end quote. They extolled his voice and his career, in which he, quote, sang with all the leading prima donnas, end quote. ...yet he lay in an unmarked grave near the Schuylkill River at West Laurel Hill Cemetery for more than 60 years. Giuseppe del Puente was born in Naples, Italy in January of 1841. He was descended from the Spanish del Puentes and inherited the title Marquis de Mercia. His voice attracted attention at a young age... And he was sent to the Royal Conservatorium of Naples, where he studied under the famous masters Alfonso Guercia and Domenico Scafati. He was an enthusiastic follower of Giuseppe Garibaldi and served as a soldier in the Revolution in Italy. After resuming his studies, he made his debut in 1871 as a baritone at Jassy, Wallachia, Russia in company with Italo Campanini, a celebrated tenor. His success was immediate and substantial. He was quickly engaged in the Teatro San Carlo in Naples, La Scala in Milan, the Apollo in Rome, and the Grand Italian Opera in London. Two years later, in 1873, Moravian American impresario Maurice Stokosch heard Del Puente in Rome in the role of Rigoletto and immediately engaged him for a three-year's visit to the United States. His first mention in the New York Times comes with an announcement of Stakash's planned fall season on March 24, 1873. He will have two baritones, Signor Morrell, who is about to appear at Covent Garden in London, and Signor Del Puente, who has been heard in Italy and who is soon to sing at Drury Lane Theatre. His first appearance in New York on September 29, 1873, was a triumph. He appeared opposite one of the premier sopranos of the day, Mademoiselle Christine Nilsson, and earned this from the Times Opera Critic. "Signor del Puente, who last evening had his initial hearing in this country, possesses an excellent baritone voice, which furthermore is under sufficient control. He is a very young man, he was 31 at the time, but is already quite at ease on the boards. Signor del Puente at once accrued the good graces of the audience in the scenes with Violetta. Signor del Puente, though not at the height of the prima donna, nevertheless acquitted himself exceedingly well of his task, and the honors of the second act were chiefly carried off by him. In 1883, the Metropolitan Opera was established in New York City as an alternative to the Academy of Music, which had started in 1854. That's three years before Philadelphia's Academy of Music. Opening night for the Met was October 22, 1883, with Gounod's Faust, which had been introduced in 1859. The role of Faust was played by Del Puente's old friend, Italo Campanini, Giuseppe himself played Valentine. He was the go-to baritone for roles at the Academy of Music and the Metropolitan Opera House for every season until his retirement from opera in 1890. That's when he took up his residence in Philadelphia and devoted himself to teaching and concert performances. The Buffalo Enquirer said this about his career. Signor Del Puente was in his day the most celebrated baritone of the Italian opera stage. He was equally popular in America and in Europe, and his impersonations of some of the great characters of opera will be held as models by many generations of singers. He was accomplished as an actor no less than as a singer. His style was passionate, yet superbly dignified. He carried his listeners with him upon the torrent of his emotions holding captive their sympathies by his splendid personality and delighted his senses by his perfect art. His Rigoletto was the finest that has ever been seen. His Escamillo in Carmen supplied a criterion by which all other impersonators of that character may be judged. And he was esteemed ideal in a dozen other roles of Italian grand opera. His repertoire included more than 60 roles, and in his time, he sang them with the greatest artists of the operatic stage. Del Puente married another opera singer, Helen Campbell, and they had a son, W. Joseph Del Puente, who also became a singer. In Philadelphia, they lived at 4303 Walnut Street, now the site of a supermarket. In April of 1900, he was stricken with apoplexy, and for a time, it was feared that he would die but he recovered completely and seemed to be in the best of health. He resumed his usual schedule. On the morning of May 25th, he kissed his wife and returned to his room to don a business suit before eating breakfast and heading to an engagement downtown. Mrs. Del Puente became impatient waiting for him to return and went upstairs to check on him. He was lying on the floor, fully dressed and moaning. A messenger went for two doctors, but they arrived too late. He was by then comatose and died a short time later. He was 59 years old. He was buried on May 29, 1900 at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. After Giuseppe's death, Helen moved to Easton, Pennsylvania, where she taught voice for many years. Helen Campbell de Puente died on January 30, 1924 in Ogdensburg, New York. She was buried in New York. And Giuseppe Del Puente was apparently forgotten for more than 60 years. There was no marker at his grave in the pencoid section, lot 525. But he was buried in a city with a south section of Italian opera fanatics. And in 1964, he got his marker. On June fifteenth, 1964, in Philadelphia's Sons of Italy's weekly newspaper, Italian Times, there is a front-page photo and story about Giuseppe getting his tombstone. Leopold Salzman, music critic of the Sons of Italy Times and himself an opera singer, dug up the lost story of Del Puente and succeeded in publicizing it in one of the leading opera journals of the country. And then he persuaded the Italian-American Press and Radio Association to sponsor this tribute. The dedication address was made by Mr. Max Van Schauhensee, distinguished music critic of the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin. He said, We are here to honor one of the greatest singers of the 19th century. He was considered important enough to be included in the cast at the opening dedication performance at the Metropolitan Opera Company in New York. He also sang roles in various Verdi operas, both in New York and in Covent Garden in London. Unfortunately, we have no recording of his voice. In honoring him today, we are trying to atone for sixty years of inexcusable neglect. End quote. Giuseppe Del Puente, preeminent baritone opera singer of the nineteenth century, born eighteen forty one, died nineteen hundred, buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. (laughs) Eleanor, with a final E, Nellie Mayo, was born in New York City in 1872. The daughter of Frank and Mary Brian Mayo, and one of four children. Her father was one of the most distinguished romantic actors of his day, his portrayal of Davy Crockett being beloved by American audiences. Frank Mayo is interred in a mausoleum at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Edgewood, Section, Lot 299. Eleanor went to private schools in New York City. When she demonstrated some vocal talent, she studied music in New York and then in Paris. Then she turned professional and dropped the final E from Eleanor. Her first appearance on the stage was as concert vocalist with the New York Symphony Orchestra directed by Walter Damrosch, one of the founders of Carnegie Hall. Her initial reviews were promising. On November 23rd, 1893, Reginald DeCoven of the New York World reviewed her performance in King Rene's Daughter. Quote, The opera served to introduce to the metropolitan audience a young lady, Miss Eleanor Mayo, who in addition to a really charming voice, fresh, true, and sweet, possesses one of the most attractive personalities seen on the New York stage for a long time. Her beauty and charm, indeed, captured the audience at once. Future experience, it is true, will teach Miss Mayo much. But with her natural advantages, her future should be a brilliant one. Quote. Six days later, a reviewer for the Buffalo Enquirer was apparently gobsmacked. He said, quote, "...the advent of a purely beautiful girl upon the stage, and by beautiful I do not mean pretty." Is one of those soft events that are whispered electrically through all the clubs and boudoirs. Genuine loveliness is telephonic. Appreciation of it is Masonic. Everybody has the password and the grip. When therefore Miss Eleanor Mayo on Wednesday night turned herself on, so to speak, at Herman's Theater, there was a responsive snap in every eye as if it had been fired by her battery. I have no desire here to speak of this young lady's merits as an actress and singer. That matter belongs to criticism and will furnish its own discussion. I am chiefly concerned in narrating how beauty becomes an event. Miss Mayo appears to be a surprise in New York, and yet she has appeared here before and always with the same visual éclat. Eleanor's best-known role was as Princess Bonnie, in an opera of the same name. In April 1894, she appeared in the role at Chestnut Street Theater in Philadelphia. The Enquirer critic was there, quote, When Princess Bonnie opened at the Chestnut Street Theater with Miss Eleanor Mayo in the title role, there was a good deal of curiosity on the part of the public as to who the new singer was and what she could do. It was the first attempt to put the chief role of a new opera in the hands of a singer who had never sung professionally a score of times in her whole life. It was looked on as a dangerous experiment. The knowing ones shook their heads. It wouldn't do, you know, utterly impossible. The advance notices of the new singer were looked upon as judicious puffery by a sagacious manager. Consequently, few persons expected anything more than to hear a raw singer murder the part. The disappointment of the critics is no matter of a reproach to them. By all experience of the past, the experiment should have failed. That it succeeded is the highest tribute to the new cantatrice, who has leaped into popularity and has made that sensation the composer and manager Mr. Spencer counted on. Other glowing reviews appeared in the Elmira Star Gazette, the Grand Junction News, and the Boston Globe. Each of the critics was totally smitten by her beauty and her voice. So apparently was Colonel James Elverson, Jr., general manager of the Philadelphia Inquirer and son of owner James Sr. Within mere months, Elverson and Eleanor Mayo were engaged to be married. It is possible she decided to curtail her career after receiving this review from Austin Brereton in an 1894 edition of the nationally distributed Illustrated American. I have quoted only part of the review here. Quote, I am told that she can sing well, but I know that she does not. Of acting, it is plain that she knows nothing. But one should add in fairness that Miss Mayo seldom attempts to act. Sometimes, in the course of an impassioned number, she'll extend first one arm and then the other. Or if the song is of an especially emotional nature, she may extend both arms together. But beyond that, her miming rarely ventures. Her voice in its present state of cultivation is by no means remarkable except for a peculiarly soothing timbre. Delightful, rather than delicious. She sings, though, in the manner of an untutored dilettante, utterly unfamiliar, apparently, with the rudest mechanics of singing. It is said that she has had excellent teaching, but either she has been an undocile student, or else she is studiously disregarding the precepts of her masters. It may be true that she is saving her voice, as is hinted by her most partial admirers, But that does not excuse complete contempt of such rudiments as phrasing and clear enunciation. Anything more stupid, trivial, or inchoate than Princess Bonnie has seldom lingered on the boards after a fortnight's performance, a hodgepodge of puerile twaddle and pilfered tunes. But for Miss Mayo, this mere puffball of a comic opera would have promptly disappeared into oblivion. Now, carried along on the breath of her fervor, it floats serenely into the dignity of a hundred-night run. Nor is this prosperous event due in any considerable degree to the splendid beauty of Miss Mayo. She is good to look at, in more senses than one. a Phidian model of noble lines and fine coloring, a really delightful scheme of drawing and tinting. But her pulchritude is not of the sort to captivate the general. If then, as we have seen, the potency of her attraction lies not in her beauty, nor in her acting, of which device she is quite innocent, nor in her singing, the least of all, for Miss Mayo knows nothing of the art, it must be sought in the novelty of her manner and presence. Unless I am greatly in error, the criticisms passed upon Miss Mayo during her current vogue in Philadelphia have been eulogistic, practically without qualification. At any rate, it is certain that no one has ventured to tell her bluntly and with kind cruelty that she cannot sing. I suppose in a communistic society, in an artistic utopia, such talents as hers would have been treated as state property and educated accordingly for the general delectation. In existing circumstances, though, one can do nothing but lament the probable undoing of splendid potency end quote. Whether this staggeringly bad review was a reason for her to leave the stage we don't know. But Eleanor Mayo married James Elverson Jr. in April 1895, essentially ending her professional stage career at age 22. Eleanor Mayo almost completely vanishes from newspaper reports for the next few decades, except for an occasional appearance as a singer at fundraisers. She assumed the role of spouse of a leader of society and she played that role very well. Her obituary says, quote, throughout the entire period of her married life, Mrs. Elverson devoted a great deal of her energies to the work of stage welfare. During the war, she was an active worker in the interests of the stage women's war relief. She was a life member of the Actors Fund of America a director and trustee of the Charlotte Cushman Club of Philadelphia and deeply interested in the work of the Edwin Forrest home 4849 Parkside Avenue. Eleanor Mayo Elverson died in her apartments in the tower of the Elverson building at the northwest corner of Broad and Callow Hill at age 57 on April 8, 1929. Less than three months after her husband had died, in the same apartments. Although the official cause of death was pneumonia, many felt that grief was a factor, as she had not properly recovered from the death of her husband only a few months before. There is no mention of children in either obituary, and the ownership of the Philadelphia Inquirer passed on to Colonel Elverson's sister, Eleanor Elverson, also known as Mrs. Jules Pettinotra, I'm sad to say that I can find no recorded examples of Eleanor's singing. The Charlotte Cushman Club disbanded in the 1990s and its collection of American theater lore were dispersed. But she may be a perfect example of the old maxim, the faster you rise, the harder you fall. Eleanor Nellie Mayo Elverson, opera singer. Born 1872, died 1929 interred in the Elverson Mausoleum overlooking the Schuylkill River, section T, lot 41. Camille Del Mar, born Geraldine Lodge, was a stage actress and opera performer, born in 1860 in Rochester, New York. Her father was Dr. Charles Lodge of Rochester, who, although born in England, served as a battalion surgeon in the American Civil War. She appeared on stage as a youth. Del Mar was the name she was known by to theater audiences in America and England. Her married name was Mrs. Richard Baker. When she was six years old, Delmar appeared with Joseph Jefferson and Rip Van Winkle at the Varieties Theatre in New Orleans, Louisiana. She went to England as a child. As a teenager, she became popular in London as an actress of singing chambermaids. This was the term given soubrette roles at the time. I have found several reviews from the time. There was a summary of reviews in The Era, a London newspaper, dated 8 October 1876. Miss Camille Del Mar as Ragged Jack in the Great City, Queen's Theatre, Manchester, every evening. And Ragged Jack, Miss Del Mar, giving a capital portraiture of a London street Arab, that's from the Manchester Examiner, there is a most animated scene in the Thieves' Kitchen, the leading spirit of which is Miss Camille Del Mar as Ragged Jack, that's from the Manchester Courier considerable praise must be awarded to Miss Camille Delmar, who gave a very graphic and amusing embodiment of Ragged Jack that's from Sporting Chronicle other reviews I found describe her beauty, her vivacity and her petiteness I could find no photo of her online but fortunately many years ago a relative apparently set a newspaper clipping to West Laurel Hills Cemetery and that is where I found her picture Delmar returned to America in 1874 with Emily Soldine for a role in a Genevieve de Brabant by Jacques Offenbach, which is what we're listening to right now. Soldine had made her reputation singing Offenbach operas. Camille played other opera booths and toured performing in many operas, numerous of them now forgotten. Delmar was with the Frank Daniels company for a while. Frank Albert Daniels, 1856 to 1935, was a comedian, stage actor, early black and white silent film star, and a singer. Only occasionally did Camille get a lead role. She usually found herself in the chorus or a minor role. Camille Delmar was part of the theater company performing at the Theatre Francis, located in Montreal. When on March 2nd, 1896, the company opened the play, The Black Flag, which apparently featured the famed Miss Minnie Mattern, also known as Minnie Mattern Fisk. Fisk is also remembered for taking on the Theater Syndicate, a monopoly of East Coast theaters run by J. Fred Zimmerman, interred at Laurel Hill at a mausoleum on Plot Bridge 75. We will hear more about Zimmerman in a future podcast. In September 1902, Camille Delmar died in the Medico-Chirurgical Hospital in Philadelphia. That was located on the north side of Cherry Street between 17th and 18th. Cause of death was a hemorrhage following an operation for cancer. She was 41 or 42. One obituary said she was 43. The obituary in the Buffalo Enquirer notes something unusual. They say, quote, One peculiar feature connected with the death of the well-known actress was the subsequent death of her pet terrier, Billy Boy. Two and a half hours after his mistress had died, Billy Boy died also, his death being caused by grief over the death of his mistress, End quote. Camille's husband, Richard Baker, was the stage manager of the Grand Opera House at Broad and Montgomery in Philadelphia. That's not the Met. That is a separate Grand Opera House. He had cast her for a role in a revival of The Great Ruby, a production which began the week Delmar died and had been on Broadway three years earlier. Baker remarried and is buried elsewhere. But Geraldine Lodge Baker, also known as Camille Delmar, born 1860, died September 26, 1902, is buried in an unmarked grave in Pencoid Section 304 of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. This next section is almost entirely taken from an essay by Laurel Hill Cemetery tour guide, Rich Wilhelm, who gives an annual tour about musicians buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery called Heavenly Intonations, Laurel Hill's Musical Legacy. I strongly recommend it. David Bispam, spelled B-I-S-P-H-A-M, was pronounced without the H, Bispam. According to his autobiography, A Quaker Singer's Recollections, which is the source of almost all the material presented here, I was born near Arch Street in Philadelphia at 30 North 7th Street on January 5, 1857. Though my birth seems to be recorded nowhere except possibly in a family Bible, which long search has not revealed. His mother, Jane S. Bispam, was a devout Quaker. But his father, William Danforth Bispam, left the Quaker body, leading to Jane being temporarily put out of the meeting around the time of David's birth. Eventually, Bispam's mother and father were accepted back into the meeting, and he remembered walking with his parents to the Quaker meeting house on Arch Street. Quote, As we went, we three together, on many a happy first day, we stopped to look at the grave of Benjamin Franklin in the corner of the cemetery at Fifth and Arch. Below 3rd Street, across the way from the meeting house, was the old shop of Betsy Ross, where the first Stars and Stripes is said to have been made. While Bispam's early memories are particularly delightful to anyone with a love of Philadelphia history, his nearly 400-page recollections reveals almost nothing of his personal life once his childhood had ended. For instance, Bispam married Carolyn Russell Bispam, and they had children together, but eventually separated. Bispam does not mention his wife or any of his children, including a son who was killed as a member of England's Royal Air Corps during World War I. The ostensible reason for these omissions is that Bispam intended his book to focus strictly on his career in music, How he learned to love music, his struggles to try to build a career in the family business, and his ultimate decision to become an opera singer, despite the strenuous objections of his mother. The struggle between pursuing a practical lifestyle versus a creative one began early. When he entered Haverford College, he discovered that one of his prized possessions, a zither, was not welcome at the school. Haverford had been founded in 1833 by area members of the Orthodox Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends, Quakers, to ensure an education grounded in Quaker values for young Quaker men. We go back to Bispam's autobiography. He said, I was soon informed that music was against the rules and that if I must needs play at all, I would have to do so off the college grounds. I therefore packed my zither in its little case and took it over to the Haverford station of the Pennsylvania Railroad, where, through the kindness of the ticket seller, I was enabled to keep it and where I went daily to practice. Bispam graduated from Haverford and attempted to settle into a position in his uncle's wool business, but the opera muse led him to England and eventually Italy, where he began to train in earnest to become a professional singer. His mother journeyed across the Atlantic in a vain attempt to dissuade David from pursuing the stage, but to no avail. Bispam's big break came when he won the part of Beckmesser in the Royal Opera of Covent Garden's production of Richard Wagner's Die Meistersinger von Nurnberg in June 1892. The show was canceled, though, when singer Jean Dresca, who was playing one of the leading roles, fell ill. But Bispam was asked to substitute the next day as Kerwennel in a production of Wagner's Tristan und Isolde, playing a role that he had learned following the advice of a medium at a séance. When he moved back to the United States, he starred in operas and began to perform his own recitals and concerts. One song was crucial to Bispam's burgeoning fame. Danny Deaver was a poem written by Rudyard Kipling in 1890, one of his barrack-room ballads. The poem describes the hanging of the title character, a British soldier in India who has been convicted of murdering a fellow soldier. The poem was so popular that composers began setting it to music. Miss Pam used a musical setting composed by Walter Damrosch, the same man who conducted at Eleanor Mayo's debut as his own, and he debuted it at Philadelphia's Academy of Music on December 11, 1897. Eventually, the tune was played from the campanile at University of California, Berkeley at the end of the last day of classes for spring semester of 1930. It has been repeated every year since at the beginning of final exams week, making it one of the oldest campus traditions. Danny Deaver opened many doors for David Bispam. Theodore Roosevelt, governor the of New York at the time, was particularly smitten by the song and invited Bispam to sing at the governor's mansion. According to recollections, Roosevelt's wife, Edith, had invited Bispam to sing classical songs from his repertoire, quote, but requested not to sing my warhorse, Danny Deaver. My hostess thinking it so gruesome a piece of realism that she preferred not to be harrowed by it again. Bispam apparently honored Edith's request at the governor's mansion that night. Now, fast forward to January 6, 1904. Miss Pam is invited to the White House by President Roosevelt, quote, to give a program of American songs coupled with a group of ditties familiar to everybody, end quote. Miss Pam describes what happened next. Again, I was asked, as in Albany, by my hostess, not to include the harrowing Danny Deaver, but it was demanded by the guests... conclusion brought the president upstanding to his feet. And with the hands outstretched, he came forward saying, by Jove, Mr. Bispam, that was bully. With such a song as that, you could lead a nation into battle. Bispam does not describe Edith Roosevelt's reaction to Danny Deaver, but it's entirely possible that smelling salts or a fainting couch were involved. Based on many anecdotes and recollections, and the way in which those anecdotes were written, David Bispam was a man who enjoyed celebrity, both his own and that of other luminaries. He was, in short, a name-dropper. In addition to Theodore Roosevelt, Bispam met both Presidents William Howard Taft and Woodrow Wilson in the White House. Miss Pam recollects that he and Wilson sang together in Wilson's office and that he advocated for music education for every American student during that White House visit. Miss met more than just American presidents. He recounts meeting Rudyard Kipling at an 1899 reception in New York City. He writes, although it was not a musical party, toward the close of the evening, I was requested to sing Danny Deaver. By that time, famous everywhere. At the conclusion of the song, Kipling rose, hastily said goodbye to his hostess, and left the room, to the surprise of everyone present, who wished to congratulate him on the power of his text. After recovering from the attack of pneumonia brought on that very night, through leaving the hot drawing room for the snowstorm outside, he returned to England. Miss Pam was puzzled by Kipling's sudden departure. Later, he learned from a friend of Kipling's that the writer had been so powerfully affected by my rendering of the ballad that he could not trust himself to speak and had to say goodnight as quickly as possible. At which point, Kipling ran out into the snowstorm and caught pneumonia. While reading a Quaker singer's recollections, one gets a sense that maybe David Bispam always carried the sheet music to Danny Deaver in his back pocket. You know, just in case. Among other encounters with the famous, including Richard Strauss and Queen Victoria... David Bispam also reports spending a morning with Mark Twain. Quote, The world-renowned novelist, whom I had long known, spent the morning half-dressed in bed talking to me. Nothing could have been more charming than his casual conversation, as in slippers and dressing gown, he leaned on one elbow on his pillow smoking a great pipe and indulged in reminiscences mingled with wit and wisdom, or with sarcasm and invective, against whatever was going on in the world that did not please him. That does sound like Mark Twain. David Bispam died at his home in New York City on October 2, 1921. He was subsequently buried among his parents, grandparents, and other family members at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section I, Lots 108-111, to in the city of his birth. The Philadelphia Inquirer noted on October 4, 1921, that, quote, David Bispam possessed an ingratiating personality, and by his social gifts he made a host of friends who will long keep his memory green, end quote. But only briefly did his fame linger, primarily when Bispam's estranged wife and one of his daughters contested his will, when it was revealed that a married friend of Bispam's, Henrietta Muller Ten Eyck, was due to receive a portion of his estate. The legal action made the papers, with Ten Eyck insisting that her relationship with Bispan was platonic. In the end, Bispan's will was upheld. Bispan's legacy also survived after his death through the Bispam Memorial Medal Award given to composers of operas written in English and presented by the American Opera Society of Chicago from 1921 through 1932. The most notable winner of the Bispam medal was George Gershwin, who won for Porgy and Bess. Although it's also worth noting that George Antile, an avant-garde composer, won the Bispam for his opera, Helen Retires. Antile would eventually go on to develop a radio guidance system for torpedoes with actress Hedy Lamarr. Another recipient of the Bispam medal, Franklin Peel Patterson, is buried at Laurel Hill, Section H, Lot 25. David Bispam's star has faded in the century since his death, but if you happen to visit Laurel Hill Cemetery at the right time, it is entirely possible that you will hear David Bispam's 1906 rendition of Danny Deaver, Who is Sylvia or the Pirate Song, burned from original shellac records into a compact disc, rising from the plain Quaker stone that marks his grave site. Upon hearing Danny Deaver, you may even be moved to exclaim By Jove, Mr. Bispam, that was bully. I've got one more story for you, just a couple of minutes long. It's about Robert Niedermark Carson. He had a bad heart. He knew it. His wife knew it. And especially his doctor, Harvey Shoemaker, knew it. Carson had made his fortune in the trolley car business and as traction. In 1907, he was quite rich, a director of the Interstate Railways Company and owner of the famous Erdenheim Stock Farm at Chestnut Hill. Carson suffered from organic heart disease. And had been under Dr. Shoemaker's care since April 1903. But on October 15, 1907, Carson defied his doctor's orders and decided to go to the Chestnut Street Opera House. The Philadelphia Inquirer reports rather vividly what happened. This is all a quote. With a cry that could be heard throughout the Chestnut Street Opera House last night, Robert N. Carson, a prominent financier of this city, fell from his seat dead. The cry was simultaneous with the last few words of the first act of the operetta. In a moment, lights all over the house had flared up. The form of Mr. Carson, silent and still, against the seat in front of where he had been sitting with a smile of keen enjoyment a few seconds before, was disclosed. For an instant, there was a brief movement on the part of those around who rushed to the spot fearing that such a step might result in a panic, Mrs. Carson, wife of the dead man, together with John D. Parsons, the transit magnet, and his wife, who were sitting alongside, quickly bent over the prostrate form. Mrs. Carson had not given up hope that there was still a spark of life and bent over her husband's body, coaxing and urging for a word. The others took their cue from her and, with ushers who had hurried to the spot, chafed the wrists of the body as though life were still there. Attendants brought water, and from the way in which the brow of the dead man was bathed, it looked as though it were an ordinary case of fainting. The audience settled back in their seats in sympathetic silence. Those about the body continued to act in the same manner during the intermission between the first and second acts. And when the lights were extinguished for the second and the orchestra had begun its lilting fanfare for the performance, two ushers, one on each side of the body, took it by the arms and carried it to the ante room. In the meantime, the ambulance of the Pennsylvania Hospital had been summoned, instructed to station itself at the corner of 11th and Chestnut rather than in front of the theater. The body of Mr. Carson was placed in this and hurried to his home in the Hamilton Apartment House at 1334 Walnut Street, where Mr. Carson was the proprietor, End quote. There are other details published of his death at the opera, but the ultimate irony was the performance that Robert Carson and his wife were attending that night at 11th and Chestnut. It was the American premiere of the Franz Lehar operetta, The Merry Widow. Robert N. Carson and his wife, Isabel, are interred in a magnificent mausoleum on Millionaire's Row in the bridge section, lots 15 and 98. If you visit their mausoleum early in the morning, you can catch the morning sun streaming through the stained glass window on the rear wall. Despite the size of the monument, it is just the two of them occupying the building. Carson's money and land were left to establish the Carson College for Orphaned Girls. Now it's known as Carson Valley School, a progressive girls' school modeled on Girard College. But that is a different story. This story just seemed a perfect way to end this month's topic, A Night at the Opera. Featured at the Laurel Hill Cemetery Museum at the Gatehouse on Ridge Avenue. Their legacies, the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. An exhibit that celebrates the achievements of 16 women buried in Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. This exhibit is just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. It is on display through Thursday, December 31st, 2020, and is open to the public Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. The exhibit is free, but donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are greatly appreciated. Next time in the May edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, it's On the Tube. Dave Garraway was one of television's first stars and the original host of the Today Show. His calm manner and witty conversation set the template for most hosts who followed. Anne Francine was a cabaret singer and actress who appeared with Shirley Booth, Angela Lansbury, Patti Lapone, and others on stage, and in Fellini's Juliet of the Spirits, but may be best known for a short-lived television show starring Barbara Eden. And anyone who watched television in Philadelphia over the past 30 years remembers Edie Huggins and Sheila Allen Stevens. <laughs> Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balla kinwood with parking available at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your way across the property. Find out more at www.thelaurelhillcemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Virtually everything about Giuseppe Del Puente came from contemporary newspaper articles and his obituaries. He does not even have a Wikipedia page. Eleanor Nellie Mayo Elverson's information also came from newspapers and magazine articles. The devastating review by Austin Broughton is from the Gallery of Players for the 1894 Illustrated American. You can find it online by googling the terms Eleanor Mayo and Princess Bonnie. David Bispam was not shy about blowing his own horn. Laurel Hill tour guide Rich Wilhelm has spent many hours researching this Quaker singer and deserves credit for producing the essay upon which I base this section of the podcast. Most of the information came from Bispam's autobiography, A Quaker Singer's Recollection, published just a year before his death. Camille Del Mar remains somewhat of a mystery woman, despite having dozens of positive reviews in both English and American newspapers. Her primary connection to Philadelphia is that she died here. The best obituary, I think, comes from the Buffalo Inquirer. And I think we need to get her a grave marker. Finally, Robert Carson's Night at the Opera was very well documented in the newspapers of the time, especially the Philadelphia Inquirer. For more on the Carson Valley School, see Philadelphia's Progressive Orphanage, the Carson Valley School, by David R. Contasta from the Pennsylvania State University Press, University Park, Pennsylvania, published in 1997. Thanks for listening.